If you're a young woman out in Covent Garden on a weekday, there's a high chance that a young man, probably several young men, although separately, will try to approach you. He'll try to ask you a couple of questions, maybe try out some corny line. If you walk through at the wrong time of day, you might hear the same line four or five times in a row. A standard approach would be something like, Hey, sorry to trouble you. I was wondering if I could ask you a question. How did you get so beautiful? Ugh. These guys are an absolute font of bad vibes. I have several friends who have had the same experience, and I've had to break the news to them about what's going on. The men doing this are completing the practical portion of a pickup artistry seminar, whereby they give thousands of pounds to some misogynist sociopath in exchange for information and techniques purportedly guaranteed to get you laid. Many of them will take attendees out into the streets to practice on unsuspecting women, hence the rope pickup lines from multiple men in a row. There's one group which used to be all over the place, whose charismatic leader claimed to have bedded over a thousand women with his flawless technique. They're out every weekend, gackles of young men in a variety of absurd outfits, harassing random women all over the West End. You don't see them around anymore, though. Not since they all went to the compound. Not since the Longford River incident. Not since they found the bodies. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. When police raided the compound of the 13th Man, a heavily fortified block of 22 terraces in Feltham, which had been knocked together into a giant longhouse-type commune, they had to leave lengths of luminescent string from the single entrance into the labyrinthine complex, so they could reliably find their way back out again. All the windows had been bricked closed, and a variety of unlicensed lean-tos and extensions jutted out from the main body, like limpets clinging to the belly of a ship connecting to new staircases and black-painted dead ends designed to confuse and disorientate. The first floor basement alone was a nightmare of sleeping barracks, classrooms, communal showers and tiled clean rooms of unclear providence. It was mercilessly dark at all hours, cramped, and slapdash to the point of near collapse. One large room was entirely given over to mushrooms, box-grown in humid blue light, which apparently made up most of the diet of the poor, emaciated souls whose bodies were discovered buried in the back garden. If anything, they were the lucky ones. Let's backtrack. Dylan Williams was an unexceptional 24-year-old, working in a curries near his Welsh hometown of Eberpinar, known as Mountain Ash in English, when he first started going by the name Pentheus Rex. It was 2005, and he'd already spent years posting on bodybuilding forums and absorbing the early noughties American bigotries that formed the backbone of the post 9-11 internet. Quick aside, because I can't help myself, if you look up his hometown, the first sentence on the Wikipedia article is as follows. Mountain Ash, Welsh, Abba Pinar, 
probably mispronouncing that, apologies, is a town and former community in the Sinon Valley. I learned after clicking through that community is a former local government designation, but I can't think of a more on-the-nose way to describe the crushing late capitalist malaise which infects small towns like this than literally calling it a former community. Anyway, back to the story. He came from moderate money. As the son of a successful climate scientist mother and a father who was a prominent policy advisor to the Thatcher government, But tragedy had struck him in his early teens, when his mother committed suicide by throwing herself under a train at the Abergavenny station. The note she left behind spoke at length about the coming climate disaster, and how powerless we all were to stop it. Hospital reports from prior to her death also indicated abuse from his father, a strict disciplinarian who punished Dylan violently for slights such as crying too hard at his mother's funeral. Dylan later told students that this approach was what gave him his steely confidence when approaching women. Gross as it may seem, pick-up artist techniques, that is to say, approaching everyone you see, negging, disrespecting boundaries and taking a single-minded approach to the goal of getting laid can work, although rarely for the reasons that their proponents claim. Putting aside the looming threat of coercion, an ever-present force in the background of this sort of approach, there are plenty of women out there who are also, ultimately, just trying to get laid, and a guy who approaches with that as his open and explicit goal is at least easy to read and even easier to discard later on. I've had quite a few people tell me that they've hooked up with guys who are obvious dirtbags from the jump, just because they know it was more straightforward than navigating the complex webs of genuine, mature attraction. If you actually like a guy, you might want to build something more significant and intimate with him than a one-night fling. Your mileage may vary, and obviously everyone runs a little differently, but this is all to say that the Pickup Artist Handbook can sometimes, in some situations, lead to sex, but will almost never lead to an adult-intimate relationship. This is the real bait-and-switch of PUA advice. Men go to them because they think they want sex, but they're actually craving intimacy, connection. They usually end up with neither, or, at best, the former at the cost of any prospect of the latter. Who would want to share their true, intimate self with a man in steampunk goggles and a Teletubby hat. Dylan's courses were pretty bog-standard, according to most reviews from the time. They emphasised a high number of approaches to random women on the street, and encouraged men to treat these interactions like grinding out stats in a video game. There were two things which did set him apart from his peers. Firstly, he took a surprisingly respectful approach to rejection, quoting from Dylan's ebook, At the first sign of hostility or disinterest, it's best to disengage and identify a new target, which doesn't sound like much, especially given the use of the word target, but the bar is on the fucking floor here. And secondly, the absolute depths of despair he plumbed in his writing about loneliness and singledom. Unlike a lot of other pickup artists who represent themselves as Lotharios and sexual conquistadors striding the plains asserting their alpha masculinity, Dylan was very open about being a lonely depressive, 
whose exploits brought him no particular joy. His writing is deeply anhedonic, a cold ocean apart from the frothing, spiteful misogyny of his contemporaries. He writes about sex as a sort of chore, something to fill the hours, a compulsion. He dedicates much more time to lamenting the masculine condition and expounding on his feelings of shame and anguish than he does to celebrating his sexual prowess. Here's a short extract from his seminal work, The Thirteenth Man. Men are simple creatures. We know what we want, and we set out to get it. But does getting it ever make us happy? I spend my time distracted by pornography and video games, lusting after my next conquest or striving for the next endorphin rush, but ultimately, it's all meaningless. I'm running on an endless treadmill, entirely alone, blind to the truth. Jesus had his twelve disciples following him around, running on that treadmill to heaven while the dream burned around them. I refuse to follow, and I refuse to lead. I am the thirteenth man of history, and I aim to calcify. We'll be hearing more about the thirteenth man theory later. I really want to stress here that, although I think Dylan was distinct from other pickup artists, and not just for what came later, his writing was still entirely shot through with the same toxic strand of misogynistic loneliness. There are a thousand different ways to hate women, and picking the intricacies apart might seem like interesting sport for a podcast, but you don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Whether he was fueled by despair, disgust, rage, or violence, doesn't really matter when you consider the outward ripples of his actions on other human beings, all with their own rich interior lives and desires, all equally worthy of love and interest and care and respect. There's a cottage industry, of which I must confess to being part, dedicated to the pop psychology of monsters, of the forensic dissection of the individual circumstances that led to wielding the blade, with very little interest in the person at the end of the knife's arc. But, ultimately, aren't we all just here to be entertained? We're all gazing into the abyss together. Let's lean over a little further, and see what it spits out. Dylan started to grow his following when he published The Thirteenth Man, available both as an ebook and through a vanity publishing label via his website, pentheusrex.co.uk. As per usual for PUA literature, it was sold at an absurdly high price, £140, marketed as a crash course for guaranteed success in getting you laid today. Of course, in order to really put the theory in the book into practice, you would then need to sign up to his classes and get out on the road with him, for a nominal extra fee. This is where the 13th Man as an organisation really got rolling. A significant departure from the rest of the PUA movement was, as I've previously mentioned, the absolutely despairing and joyless tone it took. But this theory came with allusions to secret knowledge and hidden truths, that could only be discovered through working closely with Dylan personally. 
He claimed to have discovered a code to attraction, a foundational theory through which men could begin to tackle the emptiness within their lives, one which worked every time, flawlessly, and which could be used to seduce any woman, achieve any goal, or even alter reality itself. The masculine ideal of imposing one's desires onto the diminished world through sheer force of will brought in a lot of followers, many of whom had already been through a cycle of scamming and failure with other PUAs. If you were a man who had already been chewed up by the dating advice industry, or if you were too unpleasant or radicalised or straight up unnerving to find a way back out of the hole, chances are you'd wind up with Dylan. He didn't just promise women, he promised a radical restructuring of society itself, by way of hidden knowledge that could be yours for just the price of a short subscription. To be a 13th man required that you actually embrace the solitude and loneliness that you've been running from. It shared a little DNA with the men going their own way movement, basically men who decide to boycott dating and women altogether to the disappointment of absolutely no one. But it also had a sort of spiritualism, Catholic biosmosis quality to it, emphasising an ascetic, stripped-down lifestyle. It also looped in some of the feeling of the 70s mythopoetic men's movement, which has more recently had a comeback in the labyrinthine obscurantism of Jordan Peterson. While the 70s movement was relatively harmless drum-circle-and-dragon storytelling by liberal poets, the modern evolution, and Dylan's writing, makes use of cultural myths to reify patriarchy as an eternal, inherent truth of the human condition. All this is to say that the writing wanders in rhetorical circles that hint constantly at some deep theoretical underpinning, available if you can just solve the text or pay Dylan for enough classes. This sort of thing is catnip to a certain type of nerd, a magic eye painting that justifies all your poor behaviours and misogyny, because only you can see the reality. I don't know exactly how many men cycled through Dylan's classroom in the year after he published The 13th Man, but I do know that at least five of them moved in with him, into the house in Feltham, in early 2008. Dylan purchased what came to be known as the Compound, with the proceeds of his book sales, as well as the generous contributions of his first five followers. One of them was the son of a major landlord, who had spotted the row of condemned houses at a property auction and convinced his father to gift him the money as an investment in his future. Feltham is a funny area. It's barely a stone's throw from the wealthy suburbs of Twickenham and Hampton, but its proximity to Heathrow and its association with the Prison and Young Offenders Institute located amongst its marshland means it's been historically overlooked as a desirable place to live. With low-flying planes overhead and signs on the roads warning you not to pick up hitchhikers, it's no wonder there were areas going cheap. But the compound was run down by any standards. The 22 houses made up a full block, surrounded on three sides by industrial estate and fronting onto a feeder road for Heathrow. They'd been abandoned since the 80s and burnt out multiple times, only surviving the property rush for sites near the airport due to the former owner's eccentric belief that they were a gift from God. They went to auction after his death, 
and were picked up for a relative pittance since none of the major companies stationed nearby needed the site anymore. Dylan convinced his followers to move in so that they could focus on reclaiming their ancient masculinity through physical labour. The scam seems obvious from the outside. Move some saps in to remodel a bunch of run-down houses and then flip them for cheap. But Dylan was a true believer. He wasn't looking to remodel the houses. He wanted to set up something more profound, more lasting, based on principles of isolation and self-reliance. This, combined with his outsider's approach to architecture and his complete lack of building knowledge, goes to explain why the changes he made to the place got so abstract so fast. Broken windows were simply bricked up. Destroyed staircases were removed and replaced with ladders. Basements were dug, bedrooms knocked together and then repartitioned, and the surviving plumbing was stretched through the block by a run of slapdash pipework that jutted out of the walls and across walkways, creating an obstacle course of leaking utilities and wiring. At all hours, the men were expected to be working on something, and within a few months, a system of punishments was set up for those believed to be slacking off, including time in an isolation chamber in the improvised basement, ritualistic group humiliation, and starvation. At the start, they mostly ate takeout, bankrolled once again by the wealthy father of one of the men. But the principle of self-reliance quickly led to them trying to cultivate crops within the compound. This is what led to the fruiting room, basically a large, damp underground mushroom growing room, where the leaking pipework from upstairs had created the perfect environment for rapid growing, mostly edible fungus. Members of the 13th Men compound started eating this almost exclusively, and no doubt the mild deliriant effect it produced helped foster a productive and pliant mindset for Dylan's followers. It probably doesn't need to be said, but Dylan only got weirder and more intense as this went on. He had a tendency to pick favourites and scapegoats, cycling these out and fermenting petty grievances between the members in order to keep them vying for his attention. He maintained strict control over the group, holding daily sessions that could last for up to 12 hours in some cases. Members who failed to listen with sufficient fervour to his mythic rantings and apocalyptic visions were the first in line to be punished. And apocalyptic these visions truly were. By this point, he'd abandoned all pretense towards seduction lessons and had entirely zeroed in on the mythical properties of the focused will of man. He told his followers that their labours were unlocking within them true heavenly potential to transcend from the bounds of our physical bodies and bring to fruition a new age of masculine potency. Their bodies would change through focused work and mental discipline, giving them the ability to attract success to themselves through pheromonic manipulation of matter and energy. Dylan claimed he had mastered the ability to control others, to change his own appearance, and even to levitate. And yet, despite all this, Dylan's following grew and grew. Men were recruited from the offshoot PUA communities dedicated to the most lonely and alienated, targeted with promises of a more genuine option for their masculinity. 
Sure, some left, but a surprising number stayed. Dylan was still charismatic, and the techniques for breaking a person who's already on the edge have never been that complicated. Channeling the anger and loneliness of disaffected young men into the nightmare architecture of the compound led to the place taking on an expressionist aspect as the burrow began to lean in on itself, a row of houses sagging in the middle like birds on a wire, the tunnels stretching out in multiple directions, mycelium tendrils digging into the fabric of the city, skittering in the darkness towards fertile soil, the airport, the industrial park, the river. The first death at the compound was a simple cave-in. A 19-year-old from Aldershot who sold his PS3, moved in, and started digging. But it wasn't the last. There are an estimated 70 men living in the compound in late 2009, sleeping in shifts and digging outwards in grand, sweeping circles, surviving on a thin mushroom soup grown and cooked in the central sub-basement. Dylan had largely stopped sleeping at this point, instead taking energy recuperation breaks of around 20 minutes at a time every six hours. The place stank. Three more men starved or suffocated in the tunnels in the coming months, buried where they lay. Police later located their bodies based on the explosive mushroom growth in the area. They turned themselves into living spore beds their distended stomachs bursting with a mass of thread-like hyphae that encircled the corridors of the tunnel system. Dylan became paranoid in the months following these deaths, convinced that they were being hunted by law enforcement, who were, in turn, controlled by a boogeyman he'd been dangling before them for some time now. The Global Man. To hear him tell it, and please bear in mind that this is all second-hand, recreated from survivors' accounts through the hazy lens of memory and scopolamine. The Global Man represents the crushing weight of expectation laid on the head of every individual man. This creature had control of all world governments and media, and held the world in a demonic grip forcing ideas about man into the spinal fluid of every creature it could grasp. There's an obvious link to some anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, as well as a sort of twisted literalism of the concept of patriarchy, but Dylan sold it through his standard mix of obfuscation and illusion, which always presented itself as right on the verge of revealing the truth to a listener. Although he'd normally ease recruits into the idea of the global man as a metaphor, he meant it very literally, envisaging a world-spanning sentient fog that could be physically measured with the right tools, a many-tendril creature that hovered above the ground, brimming with malevolence. His followers were the only ones to resist it, in part due to his teaching, and in part due to their underground lifestyle, which shielded them from the creature's psychic intrusions. The access to godhood he'd previously promised was now about opposing the global man and removing the mind shackles we were being held in to unlock our own hidden human potential. 
Dylan was, by now, living in the deepest point of the building, in a filthy room with exposed mud walls and no toilet. He would deliver his sermons through a speaker system that piped them to every part of the compound, talking at all hours while his disciples toiled around him. Dylan was a man of conviction. He really believed in the global man, and believed the world was ending. Many of his followers believed it too. They would carry out weeping sessions for the men of the world who would not survive, and collectively mourned humanity, wishing they could be saved. Which brings us to the Longford River Incident. The Longford River is an artificial waterway that runs from the northwest of Heathrow Airport down to Bushy Park and Hampton Court Palace. It was built in the late 1630s by workers under Charles I and was broadly unpopular and frustrating for local farmers and other residents who didn't appreciate a big, poorly built river suddenly running through their neighbourhoods. Most importantly though, the Longford River runs through Feltham and directly beneath Feltham Station. In the early hours of May 10th, 2010, the disciples of the 13th man broke through the earth in the riverbank beneath the station. They tunnelled a long way to get there, and did so with a great degree of caution not to ever reveal themselves to the outside world. They were avoiding the global man, listening intently to Dylan's words as they dug closer and closer to the high street. Once they got there, they assembled beneath the bridge, shielding themselves from the cold morning light overhead and the gaze of an entity they feared and loathed in equal measure. There, they used the cover of trains overhead to begin work, drilling holes through the bridge into the train platform. Dylan had received a vision, you see. While his followers were strong enough to accept his divine word, the average person needed a greater shock to see the truth. Only by abruptly severing the link between a person and the global man could this break in the armour be forced open. The best way to sever this link would be to drag them under the ground, to their salvation. The bridge over the Longford River is barely two feet high, and the waters beneath it are swampy, slow-moving, soft. It was perfect. The eastbound platform at Feltham was full of commuters by 7.45am. It was a bright, clear morning, standing shoulder to shoulder, awaiting the fast train to Waterloo. And when the first screams ran out, many didn't notice or take off their headphones. From the quiet and the dark beneath the platform, muddy hands crawled up out of trapdoors snaking onto the legs of unsuspecting men in suits, grasping, clutching, dragging. A sudden grab for the ankles in a crowd, yanking people off their feet, pulling them downwards towards holes drilled through the concrete and into the pit below. It happened quickly, causing a panic and pushing people to run back towards the entrance. Several tripped and fell in the process, and they, too, were pulled underground. Those unfortunate souls dragged beneath were dropped down into the river, 
where Dylan and his followers, covered in dirt and with manic grins, would grab them and hold them beneath the water, while Dylan sermonized a sick baptism for the drowning. Screaming and ranting, draped in the remnants of the clothes he wore when he first entered the compound, he renounced the global man, while declaring the start of a great cleansing away from the override. In the confusion of delirious seconds, seven people were drowned, and another 12 hospitalised for injuries ranging from concussions to trampling during the rush off the platform. One of Dylan's followers was killed by an oncoming train in the confusion as he attempted to drag another victim onto the tracks with him. Police and ambulances were on the scene within minutes, and the disciples were rounded up largely without incident. They were too malnourished to really fight back. The tunnel was quickly discovered, and the compound raided shortly after. Several followers committed suicide in the following months. Several more continue to follow the teachings of the 13th man to this day, quietly living underground and keeping his website running. And Dylan himself? He's nowhere to be found. One member testified that he disappeared into the water at one point and never reappeared. The canal isn't deep enough for him to have gotten far, but he's certainly not been seen since. As far as we know, he's still out there, somewhere, feasting on mushrooms and rebuilding. Rebuilding. But where does this leave us? The compound is still there, albeit tumbled in on itself, little more than an ashy hole in the ground. The survivors filtered back to their families if they avoided jail. Maybe they learned a small something about who not to follow, but I doubt it. Did the society that created this place really learn? Did it change? Travel to Covent Garden on a weekday. Tell me what you see. I want to believe things are improving, but the hordes of young men frantically approaching women tell me otherwise. Last week I saw a guy carrying a copy of the 13th man on the train. I don't think it was a bit. The Overeye watches us all. This will happen again. In the next episode of Subterraneans, the Skeleton Army, and the quest against salvation. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter, or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, 
please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran, Alex, and Andrew. Looking over his body as the water returns, in the end just a bit of flesh and bone. How does a lateral being intercept a longitudinal force? Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.